Welcome to your favorite podcast, the Citizen Hustle Podcast, where we talk about health, performance, and all things self-improvement. I just got done interviewing Dr. Elvin Dannenberg, retired periodontist, cancer survivor, nutritionist, and all-around great guy, author of such books as The Better Belly Blueprint, Eat As If Your Life Depends On It, Crazy Good Living, and a few other books. If you're into the carnivore diet, if you're into cancer, if you're into anything health and nutrition, you're going to love this episode. Dr. Elvin, I really appreciate you doing this, and I hope you guys love this episode as much as I did. I don't know a nutritionist that's not a vegan, actually. How true is that? They think plant-based food is the way to go. And, you know, there's so many medical doctors out there, Furman and a bunch of guys that have theoretical credentials, yet they are vegan. Yeah. I just don't understand it. I mean, if you only did, and we may want to get into this in the interview, but if you only looked at one thing, and that was evolution, and I don't care if you believe in evolution or not, you know, we are evolve and evolving. Um, there's no human society that has ever successfully been a vegan society that has thrived. Our DNA doesn't doesn't allow that act activity and we just we 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 cannot survive and thrive with the nutrition of a vegan diet it's just amazing but it's everywhere all over the world i couldn't agree more and what blows my mind is that nutritionists don't look at evolution so i actually have both your books no right here oh oh good and uh, um the fact that you take an evolution into your diet approach seems the only logical way to do it well i mean you know if you want to build a house you're going to use an architect maybe and you're going to start from scratch and scratch means building blocks and building blocks are the only way to go and our building blocks have evolved over time it's our dna it's it you know you can't make a cat a dog you can't make a dog a cat and you can't make an animal or a human, a a a, a, a plant eating uh, herbivore. It just doesn't work. We aren't designed that way. So, how did you get introduced to this way of eating? Well, <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, actually, I would say, can't even remember the date, but maybe seven or eight years before I stopped practicing. So maybe 2010, something like that, I went to the Gropalo Center for Yoga um, to do a course in nutrition. And even though Gropalo is basically a vegan, vegetarian community, this course was given by a variety of people that discussed the paleo diet, which made no sense to me. I never heard of that. I never even heard of Weston A. Price. You know, you don't you don't go to dental school and learn about Weston A. Price. I don't know why. And so I got educated in that way of eating, and I thought, wow, this makes all the sense in the world. This is how our species evolved. And that's how I began eating a paleo diet. And then 
after the cancer diagnosis and figuring out where the cancer came from, which was kind of a unique revolution in and of itself, um, I did switch to a more strict paleo diet called a paleo um, autoimmune diet and then switched over to a very strict carnivore diet for an entire 12 months in 2020. And now I would be, I would say maybe 80 to 90% um, animal based and 10% some fruit, definitely raw honey, okay. that kind of thing. Why did you switch from a paleo diet to a strict carnivore diet? The research that I could find from Budapest, Hungary, uh, a clinic called the Paleo Medicina Clinic at the time. Now it's called, I think, the International Center for Dietary Nutritional Intervention. They were treating, the doctors there were treating serious chronic diseases and all forms of cancer with a very strict animal-based diet, which they called a paleolithic ketogenic diet. And getting cure rates, of course, Budapest can say these things, you, you can't say that in the United <laughs> yeah. States, but they were getting cure rates of glioblastoma and other cancers from putting the right nutrients in the body and excluding all the things that were irritating to the body. Now, they didn't get in, into detail about the gut microbiome, which I think is critical, and other little factors that I think are additive as far as being important. But they basically did a very, very strict animal-based diet. Basically, um, meat from, they used pork, hogs, as well as beef and lamb. I think beef and lamb were the best meats. But that provided significant results that they published in case reports. And that just blew me away. And that's when I started. It's a high-fat high animal fat, moderate animal protein, not a high animal protein, moderate animal protein, low carb. So you're in ketosis six days a week then? Well, yeah. So theoretically, what I was trying to do was being in ketosis five to six days a week and then um, getting into a more carbohydrate burning mode one or two days a week and then back and forth. So cycling back and forth would be the normal way our species probably evolved. And that's called metabolic flexibility. I have, yes, I would agree with, with that term. I know Paul Saladino uses that term quite a bit, and I agree okay. with that. So let's back off in case the audience doesn't know you. Can you kind of talk us through 2018, the diagnosis, and how you decided to eat this diet and how you're still alive today? <laughs> I'm not sure why I'm alive <laughs> today. I'll give you some some thoughts yeah, about that. I love it. So um, what really happened was in 2018, April of 2018, I was eating a paleo diet and getting actually results with my patients from convincing them to use a paleo diet. Now, when I say my patients, maybe 5% of my patients thought that made sense. 95% really didn't want to hear about nutrition. They came to my office, I'm a periodontist, came to my office, wanted to be treated for periodontal disease. As a matter of fact, I had one patient that comes to mind that came to me. He was a, a, a athlete 
he was a significant political figure in the area I worked uh, in my where my practice was, and he had severe periodontal disease. And I told him a number of things, and I just got started to get into nutrition with him, and st would start treating his periodontal disease. You have to do it concurrently. He went up to the front desk, told the front desk he's not coming back. He needs to be referred to a real periodontist. Oh he doesn't want to hear about nutrition. And as far as I know, he's lost all of his teeth. I have no idea. But still, so I'm, I'm speaking about paleo. I'm speaking about nutrition, actively doing periodontal therapy. And I was very much involved with a, a laser procedure called laser-assisted new attachment procedure, which is a, a very specific type of laser that literally can regenerate bone from periodontal diseases. Cutting edge is, without a doubt, the best therapy in our hands as a specialist today, or a dentist. Any dentist can do it. Uh, you just have to be licensed and trained to do it. So here I am talking and speaking around the country, and I was asked to speak at the Paleo FX meeting in April uh, 2018 in, in um, Austin, Texas, and I and I flew from Charleston, South Carolina, to um, Austin. Now in the process, I have to change planes in Atlanta, big airport. I do a lot of walking from concourse to concourse if I have enough time between flights, and I'm taking my um, carry-on bag on my shoulder and all of a sudden it starts to really ache my shoulder and I'm thinking I, I probably pulled a muscle a rotator cuff some stupid thing but my shoulder was really starting to hurt got to the meeting did my talk got home and the pain never went away now I am pig-headed and hard hard-headed and whatever so this is April it took until September that I decided I need to see my doc because the pain from my shoulder went to my back and then went to my chest area, and it was hard to take deep breaths. And, you know, I'm a wuss on top of everything, <laughs> so I don't like to have pain. So I went to my doc, and he said, and this is a physician, my internal guy that I've seen for a couple decades. So I went to him, and I said, look, Something's going on. I must have torn a, a rotator cuff, but now it's hurting everywhere, especially my chest. So he took some blood. We did a, a typical blood test. He also did a CRP, a C-reactive protein, to see if there's systemic inflammation. Interestingly, the other blood work, chemistries and, and um, complete um, blood count, came back relatively normal. But the, the CRP was out of line. I always had a low. CRP, it was very, very high. And he said, look, something's going on. Let's do an MRI. Of course, I get an MRI. And the MRI must have sent him into a tizzy. And he calls me and he says, you want to come into the office and talk? Or would you like to uh, talk over the phone? I said, Billy, come on, let's talk over the phone. What's the big deal? And he said, well, I think you have either leukemia, lymphoma, or multiple myeloma. Whoa, these are three cancers. How can a healthy guy get cancer? I just pulled a muscle or a ligament or whatever. But that wasn't the case. The pain in my chest was because of several broken ribs 
pressing on my lung if I inhale try uh, deeply. So he said, look, let's get you to an oncologist, see what's going on. And we do a number of other tests. And I come into the, the uh, oncologist's office with my wife and two adult children. And um, I get the diagnosis of a IgA kappa life chain multiple myeloma with severe osteolytic lesions throughout the bone. Meaning I have multiple myeloma which is a disease of the blood marrow, the basic um, plasma cells that are making antibodies. And my bones are so um, eaten away from the inside out that they're fracturing. And I have three to six months to live. Three to six months to live, or I need to start chemo the next day. So I'm telling my, my um, oncologist, why, why would I do chemo if it's going to destroy my immune system further and I only have three to six months to live anyhow? And he said, well, if you do chemo, you're going to go into remission so you'll live longer. I said, well, you said it's incurable. He said, yes, unfortunately, the chemo isn't going to take care of it for a, an indefinite period of time. It, not going to be effective for a period of time. And then you're going to have to go into another cocktail of chemo, more caustic, until you eventually die from the symptoms and manifestation of multiple myeloma. Well, all along now, my, my life, the quality of life is going to deteriorate. Why would I want to live 10 years with a strong deterioration or three to six three to six months feeling pretty healthy except from pain that could be taken care of by some localized radiation. So I elected no chemotherapy. I did the radiation in my chest. The pain went away, but it did kill the cells that were causing the, the issue, but it doesn't stop the disease. And I said um, uh, to my oncologist, I need to do some research and figure out what I could do to maybe extend my life further, but not decrease my immune system's robustness. I needed to improve my immune system. And that's what I did. I started to do a lot of research. I got many, many opinions from many, many people. What I do today is totally different than what I did to start with, but I have come to the realization that I need to put into my body nutrients that my body requires that are bioavailable, meaning it gets into the cells where it needs to go. And even more importantly, I need to avoid anything that has potential toxicity to my gut in any fashion. And I have to repair my gut, repair the lining of my gut, and make sure that I have other factors under control if I can, like emotional stress, good exercise, good sleep patterns, all of these things are important. But the critical thing is to get the right nutrients into the body that are bioavailable, not synthetic, not from plants, basically from animal sources that are highly bioavailable. So that's when I started switching from paleo to paleo autoimmune, and then from paleo autoimmune to a very strict carnivore-ish diet. Um, and I did quite well.
actually quite well uh, for about a year. Then you want me to keep going? I do, or but should I no, shut no, up no, yet? Don't shut up. Uh, I want to keep going, but let me ask you one question. Mm-hmm. How did you have the courage to tell your doctor no to the chemotherapy? Did that make you nervous? You, you may be making <laughs> the wrong choice. No. no. I make lots of wrong choices <laughs> in my life. I am used to making wrong choices. It doesn't matter to me. I knew that it made no sense to destroy a already compromised immune system to make it healthier. I know modern medicine, to, as well as I know today, has never been successful in all of the things that they think that they know. And one of those things is to repair my immune system. Think about what I would have to go through. I would be destroying my immune system with chemotherapy. All the healthy cells would be collateral damage. And then they'd have to rebuild my immune system. How do they know to do that? Can they treat the common cold? No. How are they going to do this effectively, efficiently? I have no faith in that prospect. So I know that I had to think of, I had to think of treatment from a different perspective, and I have to, and I had to look like you said earlier, at our species and what has happened to our species over time. I was not afraid of making the wrong decision. Uh, that that never crossed. So you my said mind. you did well for a year, and then I know what happened. Yeah. But tell the audience what happened. <laughs> so, for a year, my blood chemistries never got much worse, never got much better, but I was very stable. I was never in what's called remission. But in a year's time, things that were deteriorating the internal surface of my bones probably continued. I never could get a real handle on that as as I think about it and, and now as I look back. So I'm standing in my bathroom one year later. Actually, this is like August of 2019, brushing and flossing my teeth. And I'm going to throw the dental floss into a trash can. So I twist to the left. You think about your feet are planted on the floor. You twist a little to the left because that's where the trash can is. And I'm going to throw the dental floss into the, the trash bucket. Immediately, my right femur snaps in half. And I crash to the floor. Break some more ribs. And my right humerus breaks in half also. Of course, I don't know it's broken in half. But I'm laying on the floor, not laughing, by the way. And I'm looking at my body. And I'm turned in angles that my, my arm and leg could never turn into, obviously, these bones are literally completely fractured. So my wife comes in. I'm screaming for her. She comes in. She calls EMS, emergency services. They take me to the ER. And in all honesty, I'm ready to die. And I want to die. I know that in my practice, when I see patients, older patients, I'm going to be 70, I don't know, 77 soon. 76 years old. Um, in, my, in my practice, when I see an older patient have a pelvis fracture, it's generally a very, very terrible thing, and they die in a year. Not always, but, you know, the mortality rate is very high. 
here I am breaking a major bone on my right arm and major bone in my le right leg, and my prognosis is so bad, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to die. So uh, when I get to the hospital, they fix my right femur so that I don't bleed out from the femoral artery being cut from the splinters of the bone. They don't do anything with my right arm. And they literally put me in a hospice hospital to die. So now it's September 2019. I'm in a hospice hospital. And um, interestingly, there is a hurricane that's coming to Charleston. It's called Hurricane Dorian. It's moving at a couple miles an hour, very, very slow. It has 187 mile an hour winds. And it's predicted to hit the area where this hospital I'm staying in uh, is located. So the hospital is ordered to evacuate all patients. They don't know where to send me. My wife's an RN. She arranges for a hospital bed in my house. I'm still at, in hospice, but now I'm in my house. So the hurricane comes and goes, and my wife gives me a little bit of tough love, if you know what that <laughs> means. And she basically says, um, verbally, like a hedge, you know, like like a, a sledgehammer hitting my head, and says, "We need to do some things to get you back on your tr on track and get you back on your protocols that you were using before this accident uh, in the bathroom." So she gets a physical therapist in. He helps me. I was on a uh, catheter for thirty days, which if you've never had. Um, so, <laughs> and then so 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 my wife gets a um a phenomenal physical therapist he helps me eventually i sit up in bed i eventually start walking with a walker um i get the catheter out and i'm starting to literally recover and i revoke hospice in other words i'm done with them and i go back to my oncologist the next month which is now october and he's amazed that i'm alive and I'm amazed that I'm alive. So I'm just going to continue with my my protocols. And that's when I started to get involved with the carnivore diet, uh, the first, January 1st of 2020, and did that for a solid year without not, without any plants whatsoever. And no fruit that entire year? Was that strict zero no, carb? No, yeah, very strict, very strict animal base. So let me back up yeah. one second here. How does one revoke hospice? You just tell them you feel fine, you're leaving? <laughs> yeah, so it's a voluntary thing to get into and out okay. of. When you go into hospice, which is a wonderful organization, um, many of them are private and some are better than others, but it, conceptually it's a very wonderful organization that helps you as an individual that's going to die. The, your prognosis must be that you're going to die within six months or you can't even get into hospice. So the doctor has to approve that, yes, it's going. To, you look like you're going to die in six months. And it, they are helpful to the family. So, um, uh, um, uh, financially, they give you resources to help you, certainly religiously, if, if that's your bent. Um, they do a lot of things to support you and your comfort, and they provide medication. And they provide medication to help sedate you. And if taken in excess, it'll kill you. 
So, so in, in essence, hospice is a wonderful organization, but it's a voluntary organization once you're in it. And I'm getting better, so I tell the nurse, my wife tells to the nurse, we have discussions and say, let's go back to the regular medical system. When you're in hospice, you cannot receive, and it's covered by insurance and, and Medicare, for example, but you cannot receive medical treatment. You can't receive drugs to help you heal if you're in hospice. The only drugs you can receive are opioids and medications that sedate you and numb you so that you're comfortable. If you want to have treatment, then you have to revoke or end hospice and go back into the standard medical um, care system. Okay, so you're allowed to end hospice on your own terms. I'm not sure if they kept you there. Yes, you are. Felt differently. No, you are totally um, not obligated to stay in hospice if you don't want. It's totally voluntary. So let's get into these protocols because I love that they're called unconventional cancer protocols. Well, that's my name only because they're not unconventional in and of itself. But if you go into the research and you look for cancer therapy, you're going to get a lot of things that are contrary to what I do. Um, I am animal-based, not plant-based. I don't juice. I don't use coffee enemas. I don't, I don't do these things because what I'm trying to do is support my own body's metabolic pathways to function as best as it can. I believe that our body desires to thrive and live, and it knows how to do that if it's not intimidated or obstructed. Now, many people will tell me, will say, I'm over-exaggerating, I never really had cancer, blah, 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 I know, I've heard the stories. And then they say, well, how could you even get cancer if you're on such a healthy diet six years before you get cancer? Obviously, diet doesn't work if you got cancer. Well, cancer doesn't start when you manifest the symptoms, cancer started a long time ago. And I did a little bit of research, being as geeky as I am, and there was a paper that was published, I think in 2010, 2012, something like that, that uh, a Brazilian um, author did research, observational research, and he looked at cohorts or groups of people my age, 65 to 75, male dentists my age, comparing them to the male population of my age. And the male dentists of my age group had a significantly higher level of cancer, specifically multiple myeloma, than the general male population of my age. Now, again, it's observational. It doesn't tell you anything except that's an interesting you know, fact. So I'm digging into what did I do as a dental student for four years and a graduate student in periodontics for two years that was so different than the general male population with all those decades behind me. And interestingly, the, the two big things that I could see 
were that I used free mercury, like every dental student, even today, sadly, putting in amalgam restorations and teeth, fillings, silver fillings, silver, not that they're silver, but they look silvery colored fillings into teeth using free mercury, which is a toxic element. And it would be inhaled by me 24 hours a day, seven, well, at least five of the uh, seven days a week while I'm in the clin dental clinic. When we did make amalgam restorations, we mixed free mercury, which is this beautiful silvery liquidy, semi-liquid stuff with a powder. And when there was excess free mercury, we just threw it on the floor, the little beads danced on the floor and eventually evaporated. So the dental school had a, the most toxic environment of probably any building in the country. All dental schools were that way. That's how we did it. The other thing that I was exposed to that the average male individual would, would not have been exposed to would be low-dose ionizing radiation continuously. These are x-rays, dental x-rays. Now, you go to a dentist, they do x-rays. That's not going to be harmful in, in its proper usage. But if you're exposed to them and the machines are going on and off and you're getting zapped by a, an x-ray machine, you don't really know that you're getting zapped. It doesn't make a noise. It doesn't make a smell. There's no odor. So you don't know how much radiation you're exposed to unless you have a badge. But very few of us wore a badge in those days to that, that would show you that you got overexposed. So... I was probably overexposed to low-dose ionizing radiation, and it is known as a fact that low-dose ionizing radiation will cause plasma cells in the bone marrow to become malignant. So that's the cancer I have, cancer of my plasma cells that are malignant. So I would say my cancer had its roots 40 to 50 years before I manifested the disease. So it was generating in my body for four decades, three, four, five decades before the clinical symptoms finally evolved. It's almost the perfect storm. When you, it's yeah. a perfect storm. Yeah. And then between your 20s to your 70s, what kind of diet did you eat before? Oh, a good bit of junk food and lots of pizza <laughs> and, um, you know, anything and everything that the standard American diet stands for. I love that kind of food. I ate it all the time. Um, you know, wonderful breads and, and lots of wonderful desserts. I wasn't into sweet, sweet desserts, but I was into a variety of nice desserts and certainly... Um, the foods that are toxic to the body meant nothing to me. I just ate them, and no one really identified these foods as, tox as toxic because they didn't know. Now we do know, at least some people know, that there are toxic foods that we are eating that are part of the standard pyramid, food pyramid from the uh, USDA. It's not called the food pyramid anymore. It's called my plate. But still, these foods are highly toxic to our human species. Our DNA does not want to digest these foods. Now, some of these foods, you say to remove anti-nutrients in your steps to health. Yes. Are these the anti-nutrients you're talking about? 
yeah, these are, yes, that's a, this part of the toxicity. But don't forget there's toxicity in the chemicals that are sprayed by farmers like glyphosate that always was known to um, theoretically dissipate from the plants and become innocuous in the body, would never cause a problem. Well, that's not true. It's totally the opposite. Glyphosate is an herbicide that kills a lot of uh, weeds and allows plants to grow nice and big and, and thick and wonderful. But their chemical is highly toxic to the gut microbiome and the epithelial barrier. And glyphosate has been identified in almost all farm pr produce. So it's a very serious problem. How do we avoid it? Eat organic? Well, theoretically, that would be the case. But if you have an organic farm that is adjacent to a non-organic farm, and they spray glyphosate with an airplane, that can also contaminate the organic farm to some extent. But you're much better eating organic. But if you're eating the foods that are eaten by animals like lamb and sheep, these are ruminant uh, lamb and beef, cattle. These are two animals that are part of the ruminant animal family. They have four stomachs. They can detoxify many of these chemicals and anti-nutrients. Anti-nutrients being oxalates and lectins and phytates. These are just chemicals that plants make to protect themselves. Think about this. If you were um, walking down a path and you saw a mountain lion, um, I don't know what you would really do, but it, you probably would run because you have the ability to run. Now, a plant, knowing that an animal is coming to it and it's going to eat it up, has no ability to run away. But what they do do is they make chemicals in their stems and leaves and seeds. They make these chemicals that if they're eaten and digested by the animal, it makes them sick or may kill them. These are anti-nutrients. These are chemicals that are not nutritious. They either bind to the nutrients that we can't get into our body, or they're harmful and create disease or damage to our normal metabolic pathways. It's their protective mechanism. The next generation of animals learns not to eat these plants, or they're going to get sick like their brothers and sisters got. So that's why certain plants are highly toxic and more toxic than others. And we want to, I want to eliminate those if I have problems. Now, if you're a healthy person, whatever that means by definition, and everything is going well for you, and you're eating a standard American diet, then be my guest. It's, you know, eat whatever you want. But if you're sick or you're potentially concerned about getting sick, or disease in a way like I have been um, fighting, you should want to remove everything that loads this toxicity to the point where it is overloaded your system and your system cannot deal with it any longer. So I know you mentioned in all your other podcasts that you don't have the cure for cancer but you are a yeah. metabolic coach. If I'm a cancer patient and I'm coming to you for coaching, not for a diagnosis or mm -hmm. cure, what's the first step? Is mm -hmm. it to remove these plants? Yes. I am going to tell you to be animal-based. 
I'm going to tell you the meat that I want you to eat. I don't want you to eat pork and chicken. I want you, or, or even fish. I want you to eat red meat, lamb, and beef. I'm going to tell you to eat animal fat in higher quantities by grams of fat relative to grams of protein. I'm going to tell you to eliminate all plants, being nuts, seeds, greens, breads, all of these things that are growing from the ground. So I understand why we're eliminating the plants, but why the mm -hmm. fish? No, well, I, l l let me be clear. I'm I'm suggesting to eat the most nutrient dense foods. Fish is okay. okay, but that's not going to be the major source of your protein. The healthier protein is the red meat. So if you're going to eat and you want to get the best nutrient dense foods in your system right away, I'm going to suggest you deal with lamb and beef products. If you want wild caught salmon, wild caught sardines, anchovies, um, shellfish, that's fine. You can intersperse that. But if you're talking about the most nutrient dense foods lean towards the fatty red meats, ruminant meats. In this country, basically beef okay. and lamb. And always grass fed, always grass finished. Ideally, because you're going to get much more purity in that case. Now, fortunately, these animals have four stomachs, like I mentioned, and they can destroy some of the problems with grains. But they do not destroy all of the problems with grains as a feed. So I would recommend letting these animals feed on the natural feed that they were going to eat if they were never domesticated, and that would be the grasses and not and not wheat. I mean, uh, grains. Okay. So for the audience listening, aren't grains supposed to be heart healthy? <laughs> well, it depends on <laughs> who's paying your, your salary. No, no. they're not. I don't understand how society can allow a statement like this is heart healthy when grains have not been shown to be heart healthy. If anything, they help to instigate cardiovascular disease. I, you know, that's a medical legal question that maybe will come up someday in the future. Well, I can only imagine they promote insulin resistance because they're so carbohydrate dense. And that only leads to more metabolic disease. Of course. And the phytates bind to minerals. So in the minerals that you're eating at the same time, you think you may be getting calcium, but the phytates bind to calcium and they're, you know, you, you poop them out. So all these minerals are not bioavailable when they're combined with phytates in the breads. But the lectins are very high. Uh, in toxicity and in, like you said, they are basically carbohydrates and these high carbohydrates, you know, if you're just eating a little bit, is it going to cause you a problem? Probably not. But if you're going to do it every day and then multiply it by 10 or 20 years, you're going to have a lot of toxicity and damage. And all of a sudden you're going to feel sick or your waistline grows by two inches and you say, 
my God, I just gained weight. Well, you've been gaining weight, but you didn't realize it. And your heart pressure, your blood pressure may have been going up, but you didn't realize it. And all of a sudden, it manifests as high blood pressure, manifests as, as um, diabetes, di type 2 diabetes. Yet, it started decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. So, you were strict no carb for a year. What made you transition to eating some fruits and some raw honey? Well, Paul Saladino had a lot to do with it, but also the Paleo Medicina Clinic in Budapest does allow their patients to be on a 70-30 diet, 70% um, animal-based, 30% some plants that are um, relatively um, anti-nutrient-free. So we're, we're as close to being anti-nutrient-free. So they do even recognize that. But all of their severe cases when they start are they they, they encourage a 100% animal-based diet right away. What are some examples of these almost anti-nutrient-free plants and fruits? Well, I mean, I think romaine lettuce would probably be uh, low in anti-nutrients. Um, some mushrooms may be low in anti-nutrients. Paul Saladino does not like um, most of these. Uh, some of the... Um, Paleomedicina Clinic uses cabbage, I think, in some of their preparations, some root vegetables in their preparations. But some root vegetables are high in oxalates, like sweet potatoes, which may be healthy in some regards, are also very high in oxalates, which is damaging to the gut microbiome. So you have to start and think just how much risky food do you want to eat or do you have to eat? The question is, what are you willing to do? I mean, what, what does food mean to you? If it means that you have to have um, dessert at every meal or you can't be happy, well, okay, eat your dessert, but it's not going to make you healthy. But if you have a serious disease, I would say <laughs> bite the bullet and eat the food that is truly medicine and get on with your life. I couldn't agree more. I think so many people use food as maybe anti-anxiety or to de-stress. Sure. Comfort yeah. food. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's comfort. It's socializing. You know, most people, when smoking was very big in the, in the day, they would have a cocktail in one hand, a cigarette in another, two terrible things put to put in your body. But that was done at every cocktail party probably anywhere in the world. I mean, this is a social event. You want to be social. You want to feel relaxed. You want to be accepted by your peers. Okay, do all those things. But if you want to get healthy, there are certain ways to get healthy. And to inject toxins into your body is not a way to get healthy. It's kind of crazy that sometimes it's socially unacceptable to do healthy things for yourself. Absolutely. And we know, but we, we've been taught how to do that because the advertising industry which supports the agriculture business of making profits is designed to feed us foods that are easy to make in prep in production and high profit potential which are salty crunchy fried foods and this is what we want in because we've been told that and we've gotten used to that we don't need those tastes 
to be satisfied, but we've learned to eat those foods. And because of that, we crave those foods. And then there is carbohydrate um, dependency. So when you are a carbaholic, you literally are dependent on carbs. If you have tried to withdraw from carbs, you may experience the same kind of withdrawal symptoms as you would a narcotic. It's very, very difficult for the body, and you have to make an effort. You got used to eating carbs and you became addicted. Now to get off of carbs on a regular basis is very difficult for your body to tolerate. Could take three to four weeks or longer to get um, uh, to become a fat burner rather than a carb burner. And you talk about that in your book, Eat As If Your Life Depends On It. Someone that's purely a carb burner now, how do you recommend they go into that? Should they go slow to transition? Yeah, I recommend okay. slow unless you're in a situation which is quite dire. I have some clients that have dire diagnoses. And I would say, look, it's not going to be easy. What do you want to do? You want to take it slowly or do you want to jump in with both feet and see how it goes? Because you're in a very, very precarious situation. But if you wanted just to be healthier and you're not in such a dire situation medically, I would take it slowly, do it over the course of four to six weeks. There's no rush. I mean, you've been eating this way for X number of decades. Then take it gently. And also, I got to tell you that most of our civilization, our, our, our uh, population are taking supplements of one type or another, even just multivitamins. If you look at the bottle, first of all, most of these are all synthetic. But if you look at the other ingredients, a little paragraph below the nutrient values, there are a bunch of chemicals that have been proven and shown to disturb the gut microbiome. This gut, mi gut microbiome is critical. We have 38 trillion microbes in our gut and the rest of our body. Most of it is in our gut. We only have 30 trillion human cells. We are more microbial than human if you look at those cellular numbers. And they make a, a significant um, point to health if you have a healthy garden of bacteria they provide many, many of the healthy pathways our body requires. Very symbiotic relationship. You don't want to disturb that relationship because it's going to damage everything and get or allow toxic elements to leak through the gut into the bloodstream, which is literally the cause of all chronic disease today. There was a study in 2019 that showed 88% of the U.S. population 88% of the U.S. population is metabolically unhealthy, leaning towards chronic disease. I would say that that number is even higher. Oh, my gosh. I totally agree. Then how would somebody rebuild their gut population? First of all, you have to eat the right foods. You have to stop the toxic elements that are disturbing the gut. And then you can add certain types of bacteria that support. They don't necessarily replace but they support your new growth of your commensal normal bacteria and those numbers enlarge. And when you get a large diversity of bacteria, it's called alpha diversity, then they help to crowd out 
potentially pathogenic bacteria. And you can heal the gut, gut lining by all the things I just mentioned and a few other things that work very well, like um, colostrum has been shown to help heal the gut epithelial barrier. And some of these spore-based probiotics that are the best probiotics to take anyhow can support and heal a damaged gut epithelial barrier. So it takes time, but generally four to six weeks, things can be healed. But if you continue to irritate that gut, it's like taking a splinter out of your finger, but in a week, then you re-stab the splinter in the same uh, area, that, that wound never heals. So you can't just keep occasionally damaging the gut. You have to stop. And you have to stop and be very proactive. Do you have a brand recommendation for the spore-based probiotics or the colostrum? There are a couple. Um, Microbiome Labs has a great one called Megasporebiotic. Enviromedica has a great one called Terraflora Deep Immune. I take both of those okay. myself. And then, and then there are others that are out there. Um, I would not want to take anything that has additives, chemicals, preservatives, because they're going to counteract the benefits of those spore-based probiotics. And the reason I like spore-based probiotics is because all probiotics are living bacteria. For the most part, living bacteria is killed in the normal human stomach acidity. That's part of the reason why we are carnivore-ish, because we, in, in our primal days, were eating rotting flesh off the ground. It may not sound appetizing. You're not going to go to your favorite, you know, a restaurant and order a plate of rotten food. But this is the way we were evolving. And the gut, the stomach acid evolved to the point where it killed these microbes. So you, the nutrients could get into the gut and you would benefit. Now our guts, our stomachs do have this very acid environment that kills most bacteria, including probiotics. So the probiotics make chemicals called meta metabolites, which are resistant to the stomach acid, but the bacteria are killed. They don't regenerate into the gut. If you eat spore-based probiotics, they are resistant to stomach acid. They can regenerate in the gut. They do make their own metabolites. And they help your natural microbiome regrow. Your gut microbiome is as unique to you. The makeup is as unique to you as your fingerprint. You can identify a person from their distinct gut microbiome. So to say you need this number of species of X number of bacteria in your gut is not truly accurate because you're unique. But to enhance your gut microbiome by doing certain things would be the ideal way to go. And that's what spore-based probiotics tend to do. Do you practice any intermittent fasting to enhance your microbiome? I do do some three-day fasting occasionally. Um, and if I do it, it's maybe once every three or four months. Yes, um, that would be an efficient method to create ketosis that does quite a bit of benefit to glutathione production, your antioxidant production, as well as 
stem cell production. Uh, there's a, an, quite a number of peer-reviewed articles on fasting and the benefits of fasting for maybe a three or four day fast, a water fast. So with all of this nutrition behind you, how do you manage the stress in your life? Because you mentioned earlier in our podcast, <laughs> stress is a major factor as well. That's the $64,000 question, <laughs> young man. Yeah, it's very difficult. So I go into states of depression like anybody might think I should and would, and I do. Um, my wife is a unique individual. She is extremely strong. Um, she's my pillar. She does help me resolve issues that I have floating in my head that are not as constructive. It's not an easy task. I am not afraid of where I'm going with my disease. There's a spiritual element, and I'm not talking about religion, by the way, but I believe in a, a soul. I believe I, we have a soul, and I believe there is a purpose to the soul. We don't have to get into that in detail right now. If you want, we could um, sometime, but I believe that's part of um, my justification as to what's going on. I think I've, I've done some, I believe, some amazing things for, my, for myself. And I think I have a, a, um, a pathway to help others understand that. And I love to share that, that journey with them. Um, but emotional stress, daily emotional stress, is a critical element. I would recommend anybody that is in a situation medically or any other situation that is compromising their health to have some type of partner, friend, somebody that they are close enough to that they can confide in to help bounce off um, some of the negative vibes that are inside of that person to help them redirect their thoughts. That's a very, very difficult process. I would say that of all the things that I've done to improve my health, my control of emotional stress is my weakest element, um, and I would love to get a better handle on that. I would say for most people, but just to recap, you are doing great things. You mentioned you hope that you're helping people out. You're, I already expressed to you earlier this year, my sister was diagnosed with cancer, and you're helping more people than you know. You're really a hero to a lot of us. So I really thank you for sharing that with me. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It makes me feel Absolutely. very Absolutely. So good. we're coming up on the hour mark, and I always ask two questions. The first question is, can I have you back on for a part two? Of course. Thank you. Everyone said, everyone said yes so far. And then the, the last question is, <laughs> what is one takeaway you want the audience to have from this hour interview? You're in control of your health. Don't depend on health insurance. Don't depend on medical doctors, although they're important. You have to integrate their thoughts into the way you're thinking. But do your research. And there is, there are many, many sources for research. But you are in control of your health. And that goes with 
every element I mentioned. So emotional stress, exercise, good sleep patterns, a healthy gut, a healthy diet. You are totally in control of that. No one controls that better than you. The problem is we are not very proactive in taking care of those things. But just be aware that you can get educated to do that and you'll be a happier and healthier person. That's great. I heard this definition about a month ago that a hero is somebody that shows others what's possible. And you're truly a hero. I cannot thank you enough for this interview. So before thank we you. close out, can kind. you tell people where they can find you, where they can buy your books, how they can get a hold of you? Well, my books are available on Amazon, so you can get that. And I have a website, drdannenberg.com, which is D-R-D-A-N-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. I have plenty of articles that you can go, um, uh, search for. Um, my blogs are searchable. So there's a little search engine. It looks like a little magnifying glass, and you click on that. And any topic that you can think of, if you type that in, any article, there must be 600 articles by now on that website. Any article I've written about that will pop up, and you can download those, and um, those are resources okay, you can Okay, and use. it seems like you're most active on LinkedIn for social media. No, so LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, I'm, I'm on all okay. those. Well, good. We'll yeah. check, we'll check yeah. Dr. Dannenberg out. Well, thank you again for coming on, and uh, we'll have you on soon. Thanks. Thank I appreciate you. it. You, you take too. care. Yes.